it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Because we like to talk beer on Beer is a Conversation, uh, today we have Dayton Coffee on the show. Um, hey, Dayton. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, now, for those who don't know, uh, Dayton is moving into the newly created role of Head of Operations for Brewing, uh, based at Mismatch Brewery, uh, but that's for Mighty Craft. In this role, Dayton will oversee the Mismatch and Jetty Road Breweries and liaise with contract brewers, including Australian Beer Co., which are making better beer. Thanks for coming on again. Um, how are you doing? Is it What's it like down there? It sounds a bit chilly. <laughs> I'm doing well. Uh, yeah, we're heading into the cooler months here in the Adelaide Hills, so it gets a little frosty, but everything's all good. So, yeah, like I said, congrats on your new role. Um, although not new to the business, you've been um, with Mismatch for, since 2020, is that right? Correct. Yeah, I'm just moving into this new role with Mighty Craft. Uh, but previous to that, I've been working with Mismatch in kind of like a quality and operations role. Oh, good. So you know the ropes, um, but this is just expanding on your role a little bit more. Yeah, familiar with familiar with the businesses and the people involved, um, but just moving to a, a slightly different role. Now, you've had a very interesting career history, so obviously I've done my research. Um, but yeah, tell me a little bit about it. Start from the beginning. How did you get into brewing? And then how did you get all the way here? All And you've gone around and about the houses. There's been a US trip in this, there's been a return to Australia. It's been a bit of a journey, hasn't it, Dayton? Yeah, it has. And it's um, it's been a pretty long time now too, which is a little scary. But my first brewing role was with uh, the West End Brewery here in Adelaide. It's part of the Lion Group. Uh, that was way back in 04 or 05 now, I think. So some time has passed. I, I started there in the lab as a microbiologist and doing some quality related stuff and then moved into the brewing department there for a few years uh, as a brewing team leader before moving to Sydney to be a brewer with Malt Shovel making the James Squire range and that was about 2010 I think I moved over there. Um, I was there for two and a half to three years I think and then at the beginning of 2013, I made the move to the US as a quality manager for a brewery in Michigan called New Holland Brewing. They were kind of a regional size brewery distributing across a few different states and growing pretty quickly. So they needed some help with their quality program. So I, I moved over there to help them out with that and moved from the lab or the quality role there into an operations manager role with with that brewery did that for a few years and then moved again within that company to more of a um it was like a technical director role where i looked after uh still looked after quality but we were doing a lot more like slightly bigger picture stuff like working with what's the best way to to make more beer uh equipment we need um, building out the brewery to to expand. So I did that for a couple of years before um, 
deciding to leave the US and and coming back to Australia, um, which coincidentally was the same time as COVID. Um, and then, yeah, when I got back here, I started with Mismatch. And that was beginning of 2020. Fantastic. And I've just, so many questions have just popped into my head with, as, as you were speaking as well. Because, I mean, must have been a really interesting time for you um, when you just started out in a major brewer, the landscape then would have been so different than it is now. Like you wouldn't have had the craft brewers. Did you, were you even aware that there were that many knocking around at that point? No, when I started at West End, craft beer was, was barely a thing at all. The only one that I could remember being around back then was um, Grumpy's up in the Adelaide Hills. And that was only a tiny, yeah. yeah, a tiny brewery with a pizza oven. Um, Apart from that, I don't I don't remember many uh, in like small independent or craft breweries back then. And back then, brewing wasn't really a uh, like a well known career either. Um, there were so few people in the industry back then. It was a it was a different time. Yeah, absolutely. And interesting that you came through um, from microbiology into brewing rather than, like you say, it wasn't really a career path, so there wouldn't necessarily have been any qualifications. Not in Australia, anyway. Did you find that transition easy, hard, pretty much the same thing, but just focusing very specifically on brewing? Uh, it was interesting. Uh, I'd come from a, um, before West End, I was working in a research type lab. So I wasn't really um, aware of production in general, even. So moving from a proper laboratory type position into a big production brewery was quite a change. Uh but yeah, there wasn't there wasn't a very well trodden path. Like I wasn't expecting to become a brewer, and I didn't realize back then that that was really a career either. So it was a bit accidental. <laughs> a happy accident, though. I hope. Yeah, I'd never leave the industry now. Oh, really? Never. Even though you've seen it in all its colors and glory, and sometimes sad points, I imagine. Yeah, but it's. I don't know. I just. I can't. I see other industries and they just don't look as fun. Yeah, they're definitely not. Let me tell you, having been in other industries, definitely not. <laughs> um, so, I mean, let's talk then uh, New Holland. Now, that was a really interesting one because even like being a Brit, we're obviously a bit, well, <laughs> we focus internally. Um, so I haven't heard, didn't have, before I started this job, I hadn't heard of that many um, US breweries apart from the classics. But New Holland, I had heard of. Um, and then obviously, you know, it's, become much bigger in recent years than I imagine when you started so how did you start there like how did you get that role and you know what were the changes what did you see as you sort of developed in that role and and the brewery group getting the role was interesting they'd, they'd been advertising for a quality manager for a significant amount of time and there just wasn't anyone that they'd found that had much brewery experience um so when I applied, they were they were quite keen to uh, get someone with a science background who'd been working in brewing over there. And then it was just a matter of sorting out visas, uh, which all happened relatively quickly. It was a it was a good move. And when I arrived, we were like a medium size. And I think the the time I was there, we more than tripled, maybe even quadrupled the volume we were doing while I was there. That's crazy. And also really interesting from an Australian perspective, because a lot of breweries are reaching that point now where they do want to grow. And 
you know, they're hitting all these milestones and these hurdles and they're, you know, figuring out how to grow in a sustainable way. So like, how did you do it at New Holland? Did you just keep going and getting investment and just keep getting bigger and people just demanded your beer? Like, or were there those similar challenges? I guess there were a lot of challenges because the beer that we were selling a lot of was challenging to make. Um, we were our biggest, our biggest beer there by far was a bourbon barrel aged stout, which was more than half of our volume for the year. So it meant we had to deal with, uh, apart from normal fermentation and everything, we had to deal with a lot of barrels and a lot of storage um, and a lot of issues that come with dealing with all of that, as well as um, trying to grow a beer like that requires a lot of cash flow that you don't see again for several months. So it was always a balancing act between like keeping the budgets all balanced and being able to produce enough beer for everyone. And for a long time, that beer was just constantly sold out because of that, because of those issues. Um, and the owner there was really like, he was really good about trying to do a lot of it ourselves. He kind of encouraged us to, um, you know, not take too much investment um, and really, really grow the business in like, I guess with our own resources, he was yeah, quite adamant that that was the way to go. And I think he was correct a lot of the time. The uh, would have been probably easy for him to take a whole bunch of someone else's money, but uh, s- slower growth over a longer time worked better for us, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point that you make about sort of, it's like, it's like cash flow. People say, you know, we want a brew pub, we want a venue because we get the, that immediate cash flow through. We make the beer, we sell the beer, that we get that money through, then we can reinvest that back into the business if we want. Whereas like if you're doing barrel aging or if you're, if you want to grow faster, quicker, that's going to be a really tricky thing for you to manage. Um, like we say, sustainably, um, and one thing that really, and I know that a big focus of your career has been quality, which is brilliant. And it's something that in the Australian industry, we obviously want to and need to focus on. Um, how do you maintain that level of quality, though, as you get bigger? Because is it just a case of throwing money at it? Like, do you just get loads of lab equipment in and make sure you test everything? And is it is it a money situation? Like, you can ma- manage quality better once you have more revenue coming in. You definitely need money for quality and it's also money you're not going to see back again in the short term so you have to be willing to pay for lab equipment and lab staff and not see an immediate return so that has to be almost like a cultural thing Um, where it will save you money is by not needing to dump a lot of beer or having a recall in the future but you need to have that vision rather than just seeing the cost of everything go out the door uh the other the other part that was i guess with with quality is the culture of the guys on the floor you can have all the best lab equipment and lab people in the world but if if the guys out in production aren't doing a good job then you're still going to have ongoing issues and you're still going to end up having to crush beer or send it to the drain or recall it so it needs to be more of a holistic approach for quality and mm-hmm. As breweries start to grow, that that definitely needs to be on their radar that it's not enough just to put a lab in. You need to start from everyone on the floor and, and have them aware of what good quality looks like. 
obviously what we're basically saying, the bottom line is that it is really hard to focus on quality when you're small. And maybe this is a hard question for you to answer because you worked at a much bigger level. But what ways would you suggest that smaller brewers can keep that eye on quality when they don't necessarily have the money um, to throw at labs and technicians and stuff like that? Generally ask for help. In the States, we had some very small local breweries that were in the same town as we were. And they would come and talk to us about quality. Like they would come and talk to our lab guys and they'd see the, you know, they'd ask what we do in certain situations because we were a decade older. So we'd had more experience dealing with quality and dealing with issues. And a lot of the time we would, we would do their testing for them if they asked. And if they had issues, uh, generally within brewing, I think people are more than happy to help. So if, you, if you're small and you don't know what to do, talk to someone who's doing a good job of quality and, and I'm sure they'll help you. Well, that's it. And that's one of the lovely things about coming in the industry for me was that everyone doesn't keep their cards close to their chest necessarily all the time. Um, they are happy to share, which is really unusual for a lot of industries. Yeah. Yeah, it is a bit of an anomaly, I suppose, in some industries, but there's not a lot of secrets in brewing. We've been doing it for a long time. So if, if people think they're, they've got a lot of big secrets, I, I, I doubt that. Um, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's just on the business side usually rather than the brewing side. Um, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> no. um, lovely. And I mean, from the, from that perspective, then in the US does sound very similar to what um, the Australian industry is. Collegiate shares that knowledge, wants to grow and wants to be better. So what was your impression of the US industry when you moved? Um, I imagine, especially when you moved the first time, it was hugely different from what existed in the um, Australian industry at the time. Um, but how has that changed? Um, I get, When I first got to the States in 2013, there was quite a boom going on for craft beer. So everyone was growing 100% a year, like breweries opening everywhere. And that obviously was very different to Australia at the time. We were still in the very early days. Like there wasn't a lot of craft brewing even around Sydney back in 2010, 2012, that type of era. There were a few starting out, but not like it is now. And yeah, when I landed in the States, there was just breweries everywhere. And the even the, the first local like hotel I stayed in the first night there had a dozen craft beer taps at their bar. It was um, quite a shock to see the size of the industry and just how much everyone was into it. It was, um, yeah, it was very different those those first few months. And then what about by the time you left? Because that was only two years ago now. Yeah. I guess the growth in those seven years was pretty wild as well. Um, I think there would have been two and a half thousand breweries or something in the States when I got there and there was 9,000 when I left. So there That's was, crazy. yeah, there was a brewery on every corner um, in some of the bigger towns and even the smallest little middle middle of nowhere town in the States has a brewery these days. And I think because of the competition, the quality of most of them is really high as well. There weren't a lot of breweries around that I knew that were making bad beer. Some of them were making mm -hmm. beer that wasn't my style, but 
generally it wasn't bad. Oh, we'll have to talk about what your style is at some point then, Dayton. I'm really <laughs> intrigued. Um, but, uh, but one thing that I, has always struck me about the US market uh, in general is that how integrated craft beer is with just people's everyday lives. Like you see them at stadiums and things like that. You see the local brewer appear in, you know, all different sorts of places. We've only just started to see like your capital brewing come into the airports and things like that over in Australia. Is that something that you noticed as well or is that just me? Definitely more of everyday life um, in the States. But even even with that, it's still only about 15% of the beer market. Um, it's just that the beer market's so big and working in craft beer you kind of live in a little bubble where everyone drinks craft beer and everywhere you go has craft beer. So mm-hmm. might be a little bit, I guess, shrouded from the truth. But I think um, their market is so mature now and people are so used to craft beer that it's completely normal for everyone to expect to get an interesting beer they like everywhere they go. And I, I don't know if Australia's quite there yet, but... I think they're heading that direction. And mm-hmm. now that like Mismatch are sponsoring the Crows and Pirate Life are sponsoring Port Power and, you know, there's it's it's inching its way into more and more people's lives. Yeah, definitely. And I, but I totally take your point as well about the fact that craft beer in the US is only, what, 15% because Matt um, Kirkyard, my editor, he did um, he was at the CBC last week, did a really interesting article on... Um, a data analyst had done a really big study about uh, looking at beer menus in sort of your Applebee's and things like that, you know, the big chain mm-hmm. restaurants. And compared to the uh, how big and overblown they seem to be, like the hazies and the IPAs, all those different styles that seem so big in the craft beer industry, they're actually, for mainstream drinkers, barely a blip. Like, I think... I don't remember the exact results, but it was under 10% um, of beer menus in those chain restaurants had like a hazy in them. And you're like, oh, okay, so this is just big for us, not big for the wider market, which is really, really interesting, I thought. But still like a lot more penetration in the US beer drinker uh, than potentially in Australia. So maybe we've got some room to grow still. Yeah, definitely. I think um, those more challenging styles like the big hazy double IPAs or sour beer or wild ferments. Um, It's going to be a long time before they're on everyone's menu. And I don't know if they ever will be, but in those big chain restaurants that you talk about, there's a lot of craft beer that isn't in that style. So you'd still find classics like Sierra Nevada pale, um, maybe some stuff from New Belgium, you know, like beer that's still craft but is a little more, I guess, mainstream. So maybe the it'll just be a while before, maybe it will be a little while before we see more obscure styles on Australian menus. Yep, hopefully we see some more though, because I would like a little bit more choice than a Forex Gold, is all I'm saying. Um, but <laughs> not, not smacking on Forex Gold, if that's your <laughs> cup of tea. <laughs> but yeah, a little bit of variety would be lovely. <laughs> Fantastic. No, I mean, we've talked a lot about the US. Why did you want to move back to Australia then? Um, you know, it's, it seems like you had a lovely role there and it was in a growing brewery. And what what sort of prompted you to move back here? Um, yeah, it was a good time there. But uh, 
seven years is a long time anywhere. And it was just nearing the time where, I don't know, felt like I was ready for another change. And there's a lot of issues living in the US with uh, have visas and legality of things and um, it gets a little challenging and tiring after a lot of years. The visa I was on was by definition only temporary. So at any stage, um, if I'd lost my job over there or something had gone wrong, um, I needed to be out of the country within a matter of days and that gets, a, that gets a little challenging to live with. So it's kind of after, yeah, after seven years. Living on a nice edge constantly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, after seven years it might have been, <laughs> that was probably enough. Yeah, it might be fun when you're a bit younger and you're like, oh, yeah, I could just move to Europe or something like that. But no, I'm like, kind of want to chill out a little bit. Yeah, it can be challenging living somewhere else. Yeah, definitely. So how did you get the role at, at Mighty Graph then or Mismatch beforehand, was it? Yeah. Um, well, I was... Uh, like back visiting family in South Australia after leaving the US and um, just saw that Mismatch had a quality, like a quality manager type role advertised. So I um, put my resume in and went and spoke to you and the owner. And that was about it, really. It was just a, an easy transition. They, um, the brewery was a, a nice size and they were making good quality beer. So it was... Um, yeah, reasonably easy choice. Excellent. And were you looking for that slightly bigger end? Would you ever have considered something smaller or would you go back to Lion? Or was that just not on the cards? The middle ground, I think, is the sweet spot for me. Um, I'm too old to, like, brew on a five-barrel <laughs> kit every day. It's hard work. Um, <laughs> yeah, it looks it. No automation. Yeah. Doing it no, with exactly. yourself. Yeah. yeah, and I'm... I don't know, I, the really big breweries don't hold a lot of interest for me at the moment either, so somewhere in the middle is always good. And now why is that, Dayton? Is it just they're not doing the beer styles as fast as you'd want or what? what how, how come? I'm just intrigued because I know there's a lot of skill shortages in the industry and, you know, lots of Lion and CU being are doing a lot to make uh, working there more appealing. Um, so what is it that would appeal in a job? Um, yeah, Lion and... CUB, well, I don't have any experience with CUB, but Lion always had good conditions and good pay and everything, um, which is always attractive. But I know there's really big breweries. There's a, there's a lot of uh, structure and there's a lot of corporate stuff and there's a lot of uh, – it's just a different world. And mm -hmm. I think at slightly smaller breweries, there's a bit more freedom. It's a bit more personal. Um, you can make – changes to the beers you're going to make a bit more on the fly you know you can change a bit quicker with trends and it's just it just kind of suits my style a little bit better yeah very cool that, and I think that I think that is absolutely the key um people want to be able to have that kind of creativity and that freedom in their roles as well sometimes they want security sometimes they want that creative freedom so it's whatever you want as a person rather than necessarily um the businesses themselves I guess uh but you know it's really interesting that um and you you went back to South Australia obviously you're are you a South Australian native then yeah yep I am ah, so wouldn't have considered another state oh I would have but it just worked out this way I was uh, I was back visiting family more than anything I hadn't decided on where I was going to live yet um 
but yeah, it just kind of worked out this way. But I, I grew up only five minutes from mismatch, so it's a bit of a coincidence. Excellent. Oh, that's cool, though. What a nice, yeah, what a nice coincidence. And I think South Australia is such an interesting place in terms of rowing because obviously there's the wine industry there that's heavily influential in lots of different ways um, in people's perception of South Australia as well. But the brewing industry there is growing and it's strong, getting much stronger. What's it like now? Is like I, like we said back in the day, you wouldn't have had much, but now it does seem to be thriving, but still slightly different in character um, potentially than other states as well. Yeah, I think like it, the craft beer industry has definitely grown here. Um, but for a for a city of well over a million people, there's still not a lot of breweries. You know, we have some big bigger players like Coopers who have been around forever uh, and Pirate Life who have like made a pretty big impact on the scene. But there's still not a lot of breweries per person in this state. So it's probably we don't have the, the clusters like some of the other states do, like in sort of the inner west of Sydney or Brisbane or the Gold Coast, where there's where there's lots of breweries within walking distance of each other. We're, we're not quite there yet. Why do you think that is? Is it because it's just slightly smaller as a state or is it because wine's still such a strong component to being South Australia and being in South Australia? Uh, I think being slightly smaller might be part of it, but... I think another part is like conservative council views, which make it difficult for people to open breweries. Um, and just it being a newer industry and maybe South Australia in general is a little more risk adverse, but I think it's coming. I think there's a lot more interest around at the moment for people wanting to open breweries. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see over the next five years. Dayton predicts huge boom in South Australian brewing. Is that going to be my headline? <laughs> Maybe. I don't think it'll be a we'll huge boom. It'll be, it'll be gradual growth, but it'll be growth. <laughs> a nice, the way the South Australia works, a nice chill acceleration. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, that's good. And any standouts? Because um, I'm a big fan of Prancing Pony. Um, are there any other brewers that you think, oh, yeah, they're really fantastic um, South Australian brewers? There, there's a few that... Uh, I guess my friends and I would frequent. Uradler Brewing always made really good beer, and it's a nice pub. A guy I used to work with back at West End many, many years ago, uh, Jeff Goodison has a brewery down in McLaren Vale, and this time of year he has his stouts on, and they're generally excellent. Um, let's see what uh, Little Bang's a great place to stop and have a burger and a beer. So there's a few around, and then... Um, yeah, of course, mismatch. We make a, um, <laughs> a pretty cracking lager. So if, you can, if you're looking for traditional style, that, that's one to go for. <laughs> Fantastic. No, absolutely. Just thought I'd give, a little, give South Australia a little shout out because sometimes I don't think it gets the credit it deserves um, in a lot of ways. Uh, and like you say, you know, more brewers are opening up all the time and they're doing some really good stuff down there as well. Um, but like, it can be tricky. Like when you've got those, like, like you were talking about earlier, the little clusters in the inner West and places like that, Sunshine Coast, they all seem to cluster together where it's not quite the same uh, in South Australia, but hopefully that'll happen. Um, like we say in, in the coming years. Um, and mismatch plays a really interesting part in uh, South Australian 
brewing um and obviously now being taken over by mighty craft um and you were there pre and post weren't you the acquisition correct so that must have been an interesting move yeah it was obviously you don't hear much about it until it all goes down but uh i guess on a on a production end with a change of ownership nothing really changes for the guys on the floor so for us it wasn't um it wasn't a big change at all. The the beer still needs to get made the same way, and we we still have the the same targets to hit. So it was it was no change for us. I'm sure there was um a lot going on in the background with finance and marketing and everything, but we don't don't have to worry about that. We don't that. really see that impact. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No. But this new role with mighty is more mighty craft. Then, so are you moving out of the mismatch, and you're going to be mighty craft now? Is that how that works? Yeah, I will be. I'll be part of the Mighty Craft business, or I am now, as, as of last week. And the role will be across uh, like Mismatch and Jetty Road. And like you mentioned before, um, helping out with uh, brands that are Mighty Craft brands like Better Beer. That must be tricky, though, because you've got this little portfolio of brands that you have to look at. They'll all have different demands and need your attention more than others at some times how do you think you might balance that and obviously like better beer is a huge beast at the minute how do you divide your time between them all uh i guess for the the breweries that are already within the mismatch group um jetty road and mismatch uh, sorry within the mighty craft group um we're lucky both those places have good head brewers to kind of run daily production there and my, my role will be to help those guys with, like, whatever they need. So we'll, we'll be working together, the three of us, to make sure that we're all on the same page for quality and we're all on the same page for safety and we're all on the same page for production efficiency and cost of goods and everything. It'll be a, a team effort across the group to make sure that everything's running correctly at those breweries. And then outside of that, working with the logistics and I guess, procurement people for, for the bigger brands like Better Beer. And that will, I'm sure that's bound to take up a lot of time because, as you mentioned, that's a bit of a beast at the moment. It's it's on a bit of a tear. So making sure that we can sustain that is is the other part of the role. Yes, that's it, isn't it? And it must be really difficult to manage, well, and I'm not saying that you're, like, looking after every element of it, but when you're looking after a, a contract brewer, you haven't really got eyes I imagine on as much as you'd want to if you and like you have it mismatch because you're there and you're physically there and you can see all the processes. How are you going to do that? Like, are you going to go visit them all the time? Um, having only been in the role for a week, that's something we're <laughs> still yeah, figuring fair. out. Yeah, but definitely we'll be working pretty closely, uh, like with our partners on those things. Like, I imagine that um, I'll definitely go and spend some time with the with some of the production partners and get to know their facility and get to know their business a little bit so that even if we're just talking on the phone, not going in blind um, and we can be on the same page with capacity and turnaround time and things like that. Yeah, that's it. And I think you need that. And you obviously Mighty Craft saw the need for a role like yours to have that sort of umbrella overview of 
what's going on in all these breweries and and like how as you say how to sort of maintain a level of quality across all of them I mean it looks like a friggin hard job though um, <laughs> so what made you want to take that on rather than say um, just mismatch um, it's probably going to be a challenging role but that's okay it's uh you know it'll be interesting and keep me busy so I think um some of the attraction to it was definitely being able to work with multiple breweries in multiple states and help bring all of the breweries up to the best level of safety and quality in production. So there are there are things that Jetty Road do that are that they do really well, and there are things that Mismatch do really well. And what was exciting about this role was being able to take the best of all those breweries and and improve the whole group, so that should be that should be a fun part of it. <laughs> I was going to say, how different are they all? All the two so far in the way they do things are they very different? And like, have you found that historically that if you go into different breweries, the way they um, have quality operations or safety processes are they completely different, or is there a level of uniformity anywhere? I think it depends on type of beer they're selling but also how they're selling it like if you go to some breweries who are doing small batches and selling all of it that weekend um, and then they make a new different type of beer and then they sell all of that quality for those guys generally seems to be not less important but less focused on and breweries that have core ranges that need to be very consistent sell in multiple states and try and move volume they'll they'll often really put a lot more effort into quality because it's their their beer might be on the shelf longer it's beer that probably isn't protected as much by high alcohol um so yeah it, it can range a lot um jetty road and mismatch share some things in common so jetty road pale and mismatch session are both the biggest brands coming out of those breweries um and they're, they're the main focus for each brewery. But Jetty Road have significantly more, uh, like, limited edition beers, and they do a pretty good job with MPD over there. And that's because they move a lot through their tap room. Whereas apart from Session Ale, we focus here on lager and pale ale and, and larger um, releases. So there's definitely some differences between our breweries. And... I think, yeah, we can learn from each other on that. We can, Mismatch could learn to be a little bit more nimble when it comes to limited edition releases and hopefully Mismatch can help Jetty Road when it comes to being more of a production style brewery. Interesting. Yeah, that's great. And I, that's what part of the, one of the brilliant things about Minecraft is that, you know, we, like we said earlier, we, sh- we share that kind of knowledge in the industry, but this is a way that they can actually embed that in their processes and the way that they do things um, and, and share that knowledge at a company level as well as an industry level, which is really cool. Does that mean, though, that um, you, I mean, obviously you, the two main ones will be Jetty Road and Mismatch and then a little bit of Better Beer. Will you be, like, going around any of the other breweries? Like, do, can they call on you if they need you that are in the portfolio but not necessarily wholly owned by Minecraft? Or is it It's a bit early to... <laughs> yeah, it is early. But I think in general, if, um, if any of those guys needed help with uh, anything... Uh, I would hope they'd be more than happy to call, um, whether it's an opinion on lab equipment to buy or 
how to set up a quality program or how to take the next steps with production or whatever it is. We'd, anyone across the group would be more than happy to help, I'm sure. Let's get into quality then, um, because we've seen a lot of stuff on the um, pasteurizing side recently. Um, but f- firstly, I wanted to ask really what, when you go into a brewery, not necessarily um, one that you work with now, but um, when you go into a brewery, what are some of the biggest mistakes they make in terms of quality and safety? Is there something across the board or does it very much depend on, like you said earlier, the type of beer they're making or the type of business that they are? I think it de- it depends on it definitely depends on the type of business that they are. But in, in general, I don't know, it's hard it, when you go into a small brewery and there's junk everywhere and the place looks filthy, it's hard to trust their quality. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. It, it needs to be, yeah, it needs to be a cultural thing. Everyone needs to be a part of it. People knowing that general cleanliness and discipline is... I guess a good way to start <laughs> um, and just having everyone on board, people understanding why it's important to do a really good job of cleaning even the most basic equipment, keeping keeping the parts you use clean and dry and um, checking chemical concentrations. Like the real basic stuff is, is where quality begins. Mm-hmm. And quite often when you walk into some breweries, you can, you can just tell that they're, they're not going to have that focus if they can't keep everything off the floor even yeah i breweries are they should follow the same rules as food and um ideally food manufacturing is clean and it must be hard as well if your your hospitality and your brewing operations are so integrated to get your like bar staff on board with all the stuff and it's all i guess it's just about sharing knowledge and that cultural thing you were talking about yeah it's definitely about education um if the bar staff notice that the beer that should be clear is cloudy, then um, if they're if they have enough education in that to just come and tell someone, then pretty quickly you could solve that problem. Yeah, and I know a lot of breweries have have tap rooms that are a big part of their business. So it's important to focus on quality across everything from from the start of brewing all the way through to what the customer sees in the glass. Yeah, definitely. That's a good one. And now pasteurizing so this one seems to be a lot more divisive within the brewing industry than I actually thought it might be um so Matt wrote a really interesting article I know isn't it uh wrote a really interesting article uh up for talking about um how Cody the uh, manufacturer had seen an uptick in interest for their smaller pasteurizing um, machines and equipment and we posted it on Facebook and oh my lord, I was so shocked. Everyone was like, "No way, we'd never pasteurize." Blah blah blah, all this kind of stuff. And I was like, "Oh, really? Um, oh, okay, I didn't realize it was so uh, controversial." What's your take, Dayton? What's the verdict? When used correctly, they can be a very helpful tool. Um, but if you're relying on your pasteurizer because your beer's dirty, then you've got bigger problems. We used one in the states a lot. Um, on barrel age beer and especially on adjunct heavy barrel age beer so we would we would pasteurize um, like we would flash pasteurize into bright beer um, and that allowed us to do some pretty crazy stuff with adding fruit concentrates and god marshmallow caramel all kinds of dumb stuff to make you know like pretty interesting limited edition beer and it also allowed us 
to process our beer much more efficiently um, coming out of barrels. But we didn't use it on IPAs and we didn't use it on our other beers. We relied on our quality program to make sure they were clean. So I, I have no issue with people pasteurizing if, if they use it in a manner that is helpful for their business or helpful for their brand. But like I said, if, you, if you're using it because you can't make your beer that should be clean, clean, then you should be looking elsewhere to solve your issues. And I think that's really interesting as well, because I think, uh, I guess that's the the subtext of it, that people think that if you admit to pasteurising or if you do pasteurise, you're admitting somehow in some weird roundabout way that your beer might not be as good. And that's not necessarily the case at all. Um, but I think there is that perception in the industry. I don't know whether whether you see that as well. Yeah, there's definitely a perception that you might be cheating some way and using a pasteuriser. The quality of the beer, like, is a beer that has been through a pasteuriser as good as a beer that hasn't? Then, you know, that's that's up to, I guess, the brewery to decide on. But I I think that um, the new pasteurisers are pretty good. They they definitely a lot better than pasteurisers from the '80s as far as holding time and accuracy of temperature and everything so you probably are damaging your beer less than you would have in the olden days but i think um if you're making big fresh hoppy ipas and you're looking for every last bit of flavor then it would be a tough choice to to pasteurize that beer mm-hmm. yeah interesting no i'm always re- i'm so intrigued to hear people's opinions of it especially because like i say it was so controversial and i was literally like oh okay didn't realize there were such vehement opinions about this one um but yeah really really interesting thanks for that Dayton. um and now one thing i wanted to have a quick chat about before uh, i let you go is like we talked just very briefly earlier about skills shortages in the industry and there's a real push by the iba to uh bring in qualifications at tafe level in particular uh now because you've come at it from a slightly different angle um but still really like highly qualified in that area type of angle what do you think what's the verdict on qualifications um when you or any of your brewing teams employ someone is it essential that they have qualifications or like how would you decide otherwise that they were at the level that you need them to be i think the last four maybe five people we've hired here at Mismatch all have some qualification and most of them came through the uh, South Australian TAFE short course. So that three month, I think it's three months, three month brewing course they do um, at Regency TAFE where they have a, I think they've got like a 10 hectolitre brew kit and they they do all the basic brewing stuff and they, they get an idea of how everything works and those guys have been really good. So without, I guess, that also shows that those those guys have got a bit of dedication. They, they've taken time out of their lives to study um, because they want to get into this industry. So that, that speaks to us a little bit. Um, and it sets them apart from people who come out of other industries who just want to get into brewing. As far as having qualified people apply as well they it's definitely hard you don't get a lot of applicants that have got a big brewing history so i think if you can get some education it's definitely a good thing it it helps us when we're hiring and it's got to help people understand the industry more as well hopefully 
Yeah. And how is it over in the US in terms of new brewers? Do most people have qualifications or is it similar to over here? Um, No, it was really tough over there. We were in an area that had a decent amount of manufacturing and an economy that was doing okay. So just finding people at all was difficult. Um, So we we would hire pretty much anyone um, and then uh, offer them training internally. So after, if they, if they showed some promise, um, working in the brewery after a a pretty short time, then, uh, we would pay for their IBD qualifications if they wanted to do it and try and help them move up through the brewery, uh, because getting people over there was quite difficult. And there was also some bigger breweries in our area that were quite happy to pay our qualified guys more than we could pay them. So we would, sometimes bleed staff mm-hmm. um, and then have to train again. But it's, um, yeah, it was difficult for some of the time, but we um, we managed to build a really good team there and get everyone educated and and hold on to them for some time. So mm-hmm. it was it was a lot of work, but it's... It's worth it. It was required, yeah, I suppose. Um, yeah, and uh, yep. from what I hear from uh, the TAFE courses as well, there is a big focus on things like quality and safety and uh, cleanliness and hygiene and all those things that go towards um, quality that you might not necessarily get if you've come from the home brewing route, potentially. I don't know if that's fair to say. Just from a process perspective rather than, I'm not saying homebrewers don't clean their gear. I'm definitely, definitely do. Um, but from a commercial perspective, I guess, um, it's a slightly different beast. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, even just the, I guess, the severity of the chemicals is different in production. So having the guys be aware of how dangerous some of the chemicals are when they come out of the TAFE course is... Um, is nice. So they've got some basic idea about chemical safety. And then at the SA TAFE course, they've got fermenters and a brew house that is, you know, of a like brew pub size. So they're used to using pumps and the way things connect to each other and the way the valving might work. And so they've got a baseline they can work from, which um, if you've only been doing 20 litre batches, you're probably not going to have yeah, again, another thing that um, like the IBA definitely has been focusing on and, and we've sort of been following along um, as they sort of try and bring them into as many states as possible and grow the amount of people in them. And I think it is important for the potentially the future health of the industry to have that focus and qualifications, not for the sake of them, but to make sure that there's uniformity of process across lots of aspects of the brewing industry, including health, safety quality um all the good stuff effectively yeah if the industry is going to grow we need a a talent pool to pull from and um hopefully they can set up some good education across all the states and it'll um make it a little bit easier when it comes to hiring time Mm -hmm. absolutely right well we've come i've I've talked your ear off now uh but just last one then what, what are we predicting for the future of the Australian brewing industry in the coming years? Anything that you think we're going to be focusing on more, a style, um, more education like we've been talking about? What, what's your prediction, Dayton? Uh, as far as style goes, who knows? <laughs> um, they seem to come out of nowhere. But I would think there's a lot of uh, brands on the shelf already and it's going to only get harder to get 
shelf space and to get your beer in front of people and rotated through on a decent time. So I think um, I think there might be more breweries opening up with more of the um, like big US tap room model where you sell locally and you move a lot of beer through your tap room. And even if it's, you know, takeaway cans and pints over the bar rather than trying to get into Dan Murphy's or the bigger wholesalers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you might see a bit more of that in the coming years because that medium sized distribution model only gets harder as there's more people playing in that space. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll have to speak in a couple of years and I can tell you if you're right then. Um, (laughs) But thank you so much for coming on, Dayton. Really appreciate it. And congrats on your new role at Mighty Craft. I'm sure you'll absolutely smash it. No problems. Um, But yeah, keep in touch and let us know how everything goes. But yeah, really appreciate you coming on Beer as a Conversation. No worries. Thank you very much.